Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I had an interesting uh, discussion with someone yesterday, and um, basically they were saying that uh, people just somehow become conditioned not to dream. And that there's sort of like this, um, this culture of kind of following the, the herd. And, and since, since you don't want to break out of the pack, and there's a comfort in, in sort of staying in the pack, that, that a certain part of yourself gets cut off and you don't, you don't, you don't follow your dream. And, and I thought that there was, you know, I think for sure there's a lot of wisdom to that. Um, uh, I, I had this experience um, in, in college. I was going to a class and I was sitting in a hallway and, you know, the, the, the classes were in session, but, but they were about to end and the door remained closed to this particular lecture hall that where, where the class I was taking was in. So I think when I showed up, I think there were a couple of people standing outside the door and so I was standing outside the door as well, you know, waiting because sometimes the classes go over a little bit, a couple minutes, whatever it is. So, so everyone's kind of waiting outside for the class to end and people to come out. And then it's not for whatever reason the door isn't opening. And now you've got like a whole crowd of people in the hallway waiting, waiting for that lecture to end and, and, and you know, for us to be able to go in and, and, and have our class. Anyway... When it became like three, four, five minutes or something like that, I thought to myself, I don't know, something, something strange is going on. And so I opened up the door and I looked in and there was the professor sitting alone in an empty classroom. <laughs> like everyone just assumed, they, they saw the other, the other people waiting and they just assumed that there must be a reason why they're waiting because... There are people still inside the classroom, but there was no one inside the classroom. And so there was this sort of herd mentality where everyone is just following everyone else, but, but there was no leader, and, and, and the leader who didn't exist certainly didn't know what he was doing because he didn't exist. <laughs> so, so everyone just assumed that, oh, okay, we'll just wait now. So t- that was always like a big lesson to me that, you know, you have to, you have to figure out like, where are we going? Where am I going? And if I'm just assuming that I'm trusting you and I'm just following you, I have to make sure you know where you're going, right? Because otherwise it's just a bunch of people waiting for a bus that's not actually at a bus stop, <laughs> you know? It's... um. <sighs> There, there was a movie, I don't know if you saw it, it was called Ghost World. And there was like a very evocative kind of thing where there was just this, I don't know whether it was a homeless person or just someone who just had that look to him anyway. And he'd wait by this bus stop and the bus never came. And during the whole movie, just this person walks by looking at this person by a bus stop and just the bus never came. You know? I, I, I once... And then, by the way, at the end of the movie, the bus comes. But it's a, like a mystical kind of thing, you know. But I once imagined a headline, kind of like for The Onion or something like that, that, you know, motorist waits for four years at broken stoplight. <laughs> but that's, I, I do think that that is very, that's a big trap that a lot of people fall into. Um, Reb Shlomo says that in order to be free, you have to have a plan. You know, because you can be free, but then you're just kind of free to do what exactly? Free to run in circles, free to be a slave of your own desires. Like, it's just another form. Directionlessness is just another form of enslavement, really. Um, you, you have the illusion of freedom because no one's cracking a whip over you. But to be truly free, you, you have to be free to be able to do something. You know, 
So, and there is a direction. There is a direction to the world. There is a direction to our lives. And and being free is tapping into that that notion of meaning, that that notion of purpose. Um, so, you know, Reb Shlomo used to describe this very high level, this extremely high spiritual level that I'm telling you right now, where someone basically cleaves to God so completely that they lose their free choice because they arrive at a place where they say, how can I not serve you? A very, very high level. It's sort of like, it, it's, it's total clarity. It's total clarity. I did a podcast interview for, for this show. I, I don't know when it will be posted, maybe another month or something like that. So it's a new podcast called God and Other Delicacies. <laughs> okay? So I like the title. Anyway, he found me somehow, and I sat in his garage, and <laughs> we did this kind of interview. And, um, you know, he asked me toward the end, he said, you know, you, you seem to have some level of clarity. I don't know if you used that word, but that's what he meant. He said, how do you know? How do you know? And what I told him was that something that I think everyone really has to like really understand this like very, very, very deeply, which is that God created the world in such a way that you can never know that that his that that he can't be proven. You see, that was God's idea. That's not our idea. That was God's idea to create the world in such a way where he can't be proven. Why? Well, there are a lot of reasons why. Um, in, the, in the spiritual realms, angels have this quantum level of understanding of God's presence. They don't see the entirety of God. Only God sees the entirety of God. But, but they see so much godliness that they don't have any free choice. Like, if you were, so to speak, to put, like, a ham sandwich, right, and, like, a kosher sandwich in front of an angel, like, a thousand percent of the time they're going to choose the kosher sandwich, so to speak, because they see the presence of God very clearly. So God has those perfect creatures. Those already exist in the universe. God desired to create human beings, that's us, who had the capacity not to be intimidated by God's presence and to serve him anyway. Who would have to struggle to serve God. Do, do you have to understand something. The concept of struggling to serve God does not exist anywhere else in all the spiritual worlds except right here and with us. And so for someone to have to struggle to serve God to have to not be bullied into serving God, to sort of like have an even playing field and to really look into their lives, look into this world, see in order, understand that there's a purpose to creation, and then say, this is what I want, even though this immediate desire is pulling me more strongly, but this is what I want. I want to attach myself to the truth, to something higher. And then to make sometimes a personal sacrifice in order to do that? This, this is literally higher than the angels. This love, even amidst our mistakes, even amidst our bad days, right, where we blow it, this level of service cannot be attained by any other creature in all the worlds except human beings. And God desired this. But in order to have this, God had to create a realm where he can't be proven. Do you understand? In order to maintain this level of free choice. And I'll I'll say this point maybe till I die, because I really want people to understand this. And I've never heard anyone else say it. And people think the following, and they'll never say it, because you have to think for a long time to be able to say it as clearly as I'm going to say it, okay? They feel it, but they can't quite articulate it, right? What's the thought? 
they think that the reason why I don't know for sure that there's a God in this world is because God is weak. Because if God were stronger, he could make me believe in him. (laughs) Why can't he make me believe in him? He must be weak. Now you understand that this is a ridiculous thought. It's completely absurd. It's, it's, It's a sign of God's awesome greatness that he gives us life, makes this world, sustains absolutely everything, and even withstands the insult of us saying that he doesn't exist. It's awesome. It's awesome. You know, people think God is like so small, God is so petty. If I do this, he's going to do that. God is so beyond. You know, I remember one of the things, you know, speaking of being beyond, I remember... Someone told me a story. He said that he picked up Reb Shlomo in a Mercedes Benz, right? This was like, I don't know, during the 1960s, early 70s, or whatever it is. And, uh, and he all of a sudden got very self-conscious. Like, he's like picking up this, like, Rebbe, right? Like, in a Mercedes Benz. Like, what's the problem? Well, the Mercedes Benz sign was on some of the gas chambers and the death camps. You know what I mean? They made some of these some of this machinery. So certain people have a sensitivity about not wanting to get into a Mercedes. Anyway, so he apologized to Reb Shlomo, and Reb Shlomo said, hey, I'm way past that, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe he said, I don't know if he said, I'm way past it. I think he said, I'm way beyond that, brother. I think that's what he said. I think those were his words. Which is pretty amazing. Right? You know, I'll tell you something. You have to be careful when you speak like that. I, I was invited to someone's wedding, and they wanted me to sign the, the ketubah, the marriage contract, right? And there was a very, very strict rabbi, like, overseeing it. And in order to be, to, to sign a document like that, you have to be what's called a kosher witness, which means you have to observe Shabbos, Right? So the, the, the rabbi has to ask you some personal questions about your level of observance to make sure that, that you are, you know, that you are a legitimate witness according to Jewish law. So he starts asking me some like, detailed questions about my observance. And I, I was like em- embarrassed, not embarrassed that I wasn't keeping these things. I was embarrassed that you, you know, you're really you're not supposed to talk about your own level of observance, right? I mean, that's like when you do something holy, okay, you can share it maybe with your children so that they can learn from you. That's important. But, you know, you don't want to be bragging about your mitzvahs, right? That's something that you kind of keep a little bit secret, you know, and then the fire continues to burn inside of you. Right? There might be occasions where it's appropriate to share something, but for the most part, the general rules. You, you keep it inside you. So he's asking me about aspects of my observance, and I didn't know what to say to him, right? And so I, I from a standpoint of being embarrassed, I, I, I told him, I said, I said, hey, I'm way beyond that, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and then he looked at me and said, this guy can't sign the ketubah. <laughs> this guy sounds a little nutty. <laughs> I'm not letting him. <laughs> so I was, <laughs> I was, I was kicked, kicked, kicked out of that honor. But so it goes anyway. So when you talk like that, you have to be careful, you know. Um, so. So anyway, anyway, you know, Hashem is way beyond that. Hashem for sure is way beyond that. And, um, you know, Rabbi Green said one time so beautifully that, you know, when, when you make a painting, like you go into any museum, you'll see it says in the corner, Van Gogh, right? Or whoever the artist is signs it. Like you go to the, Grand Canyon, like 
wouldn't you think in the corner it would say, God? <laughs> you know, like God just like, like, oh man, look what I did here. This is amazing. Can't not sign that, right? You make, you make the Alps, right? Like they're in the corner, God, right? But it shows you like how beyond God is that he can create, I mean, human beings, nature, stars, galaxies, the universe, and he doesn't feel as though he has to brag, and, and, and he allows you to say, oh no, you didn't do it. He goes, okay, I'm still going to give you breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> right? Still going to give you all these things, right? Keep you alive. I'll tell you something. There there are all sorts of amazing um, correlations in terms of like the... All right, maybe we'll get into this a little bit more, but we have what's known as the ten utterances of creation. God spoke the world into existence. Now, God doesn't have a body or a mouth or anything like that. God, God makes bodies. He doesn't have a body. But nonetheless, the the sages put it in this way for us to be able to begin to wrap our minds around it, right? That God spoke the world into creation. And those were ten utterances, all right? And they're listed in the beginning of of Brachis. And God said, let there be. So there are nine of those. And then there's an argument in the Gomorrah, what's the tenth? And and they agree in the end that the the word Brachis... Out of beginnings, the first word of the Torah was the first utterance of creation. And all the rest are, and God said, let there be. Right? There are nine of those. Anyway, if you, if you get into it, there are also Ten Commandments. So, so there's a correlation between the commandments and the utterances of creation. And I saw from... Uh, the Mechel Shlomo says that the if you if you look at the one the the, the number which says um, and God says you know let us create man human beings right and that's the big question like why do you say let us create human beings and and the answer is because as Rabbi Tversky says so beautifully that that it's a partnership that you, you your creation you are a partner in creating yourself. With God. So let us create men. Men, of course, meaning human beings. So what commandment does that utterance of creation correlate with? Wouldn't that be interesting to know? And you ready for this? This is unbelievable. Thou shalt not bear false testimony. Do you understand what that means? That means God created man with the ability... He gave man the ability to deny his creator. Can you imagine God? Like you want to know just how beyond God is. God created us with the ability to deny that he even exists. And God says, okay, don't do that. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. That's amazing. So... So there's this idea that you don't want to kind of break from the herd, right? Like in terms of following your dreams. Like you don't, you want to kind of stay safe in your community and maybe if I follow a dream, I'll be like an outlier. I'll sort of leave, leave the herd and then maybe I'll get cut off and die. Who knows? Right? That's the sort of the existential fear. Um... So, but I think, I think maybe we can go even deeper than that, right? Which is, I don't know that people start off necessarily being afraid to pursue a dream. I think it happens sometimes. That, that certainly is a certain percentage. But, but why are they afraid to pursue the dream to begin with? And, and I think that it's because <coughs> They did pursue a dream, and they failed at pursuing the dream. And that, that, that rejection that people experienced 
is so traumatizing that it creates paralysis. And so, so I, I, I don't think it's necessarily the case. Again, we're, we're talking about populations here, so we can't overgeneralize. We can't overgeneralize. I think that there is probably a certain percentage of people who, like, that pain of rejection is not the issue. But I think maybe for the majority, I'm just speculating, they do naturally pursue those things. But then you get shot down, and then you get shot down again, and maybe again, and then who has the strength to, to, to put themselves through that? I, I once saw something. I was walking to Shul. I think it was either on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. And I was walking with one of my kids, I remember. We were walking down this little side street. And from the distance, we saw um, the, the, like five large blackbirds. And I'm talking about like blackbirds. That, they must be like two feet high. They're like pretty big birds, okay? And like, like not skinny. Like they're tall and fat. Right? Like they're pretty pretty impressive looking. And there were about five of them. And they got to the corner and then they hopped down onto the street, because right, the corner is about half a foot high, right? Like that curb. They hopped down to the street, they walked across the street, and then they hopped up on the other side of the curb. And we were kind of as we were walking toward them, I was watching them and, and I, I, I said to them, I said Hey, guys, you know you can fly, right? <laughs> I mean, it was just such an odd, such an odd thing, you know? Especially they've got these big wings, you know? And, and they do fly, right? So, so I think that some of us forget to fly, you know? And then some of us feel as though we've gotten our wings cut off even though they're still there. And so, so let's go deeper still. The question is, what do you do about that? Since more or less all of us are in that category, how do you, how do you address that situation? And so what I would like to suggest is an idea, and how you apply this idea will be very individual and personal. Right? I mean, I can't take it at this point in my life anyway beyond what I'm going to tell you next. But if you're interested in pursuing it, you're going to have to really look into your own heart and your life and maybe get more specific advice on how to advance it to this next level. Okay? And I think that, and, and I would love to be in this category myself. I don't want to pretend that, that I've mastered this, although I'm working on it, is we have to try to take life, and as strange as this is going to sound, we have to try to take life less personally. And one of the ways, I'll just give you different ideas of how to do it, and, and um, but like I said, the real work will be between you and yourself on this one. So, so one thing that my, my dad uh, used to say to me that he learned from his grandma, right? Which is that, you know, if you try your hardest at something and it doesn't work out, you didn't fail, it just didn't work out. That's the thing. Now, do, do you hear how, if you like, were able to live that, you wouldn't take things as personally? Because when you use this word fail or something like that, all of a sudden it becomes this like black mark on your soul or this red mark on your soul. But if you say, you know, I tried, it just didn't, just didn't go, right? My, my daughter applied for this internship which, by the way, I, I personally don't think that she was, that it would have been the best internship for her. 
not, not that it was anything bad. It was a public service kind of thing. I just don't know that it would have necessarily advanced her career in the direction that she wanted to do. It was a free internship anyway. She was going to be working for free. But anyway, it was competitive to, to, to get it. And she got an interview, which was exciting. And then she found out that she didn't get it. And she was sad. And she told me I was rejected from it. I said, you weren't rejected from it. She said, I didn't get it. I was rejected from it. I said, but you weren't rejected from it. She goes, when you apply to school, you either get in or you're rejected. I was rejected from it. I said, but you weren't rejected from it. She said, what are you talking about? I said, because rejection is such an emotional word. It's so emotional. They had... It's not like they saw you and they were disgusted and sent you away, right? They found someone they wanted more. They liked you, but they liked someone more. That's not rejection, right? But, but whatever you want to call it, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to zero in on a certain emotionality that I'm trying to strip away in the, in the attempt of not taking life as personally, if you can. So I'll tell, you, um, I'll tell you another idea, and these are all kind of addressing the same issue from different angles, okay? So, so this next idea is really one of the, the big lessons that I learned in life and, and from a Torah approach to life, which I think is very kind of a very healing idea, which is that God controls results, but we are in charge of the effort, right? So if you, if you, you can't accomplish anything, actually. <laughs> you can only try, right? Because God, God controls the effort, God controls the results. So I'll give you a Devar Torah on this that I heard from Gedalia Gerfine that I, I like very much. He says the word parnosa, parnosa means livelihood, right? It's like a big word. It means like whether you've got a job or cash or whatever it is. So it's kind of a big word in, in Torah, parnosa, right? So he says that parnosa is actually two different words kind of conjoined. One is par, and the other is nace. Okay, do you hear that in the word parnosa? Par, nosa, par, nace. Par means difficult, as in paro, like Pharaoh, right? He was a very difficult guy. So par means difficult, nace means a miracle. So, so parnosa, livelihood, would then be translated as a difficult miracle, right? So now let's go to the next level. Who's it difficult for? <laughs> We just said it's a difficult miracle. Who's it difficult for, for? It's not difficult for God because nothing's hard for God. And it's not difficult for man. It's impossible for man. <laughs> because you don't control the results. So who's it difficult for? It's difficult for us to believe God is going to do it. <laughs> there you have a very a whole kind of worldview lesson in the breakdown of a word. Right? Remember, Hebrew is the language that God created the world through, through these ten utterances. Right? And as Reb Shlomo said so beautifully one time, when the wind rustles through the, the bushes, the sound that it makes is in Hebrew. <laughs> right? Because Hebrew is the, the language of creation. It's the language of creation. So here you see an example of results are not in our hand, but effort is in our hand. Now, I was talking to a guy the other day who was having a hard run. You know, he's been looking for a job for a while. Shem should bless him. And, uh, and he said to me, yeah, you know, um, we were talking about some of these things. He was part of this conversation. And he said to me sort of privately off to the side, <coughs> He said, yeah, you know, I'm really caring less. And I said, yeah, but that's not it. 
I said, that's defeatism. You can't fall into defeatism under the guise, under the mask of trying to take things less personally. The answer is not disassociating yourself emotionally. Because that just is just another fancy way of saying, I've given up. You can't give up. So then we get to really how complicated this really is, which is why every single person has to figure out their own way through this. How do you care intensely, work very hard, because the effort is in your hands, in our hands, right? Like I always like to say, we say, God, I believe in you so much, you run the entire world, I'm handing the ball to you. And God says, ah, that's so beautiful. I'm handing it back to you. (laughs) And you're like, what? Because people think that if I become religious, I have to work less. If I believe in God, somehow I am excused from the effort, and that's not Torah. That might be other traditions that I haven't studied. I don't know. But that's not us. That's, that's not where we're coming from. We're coming from a place of, you got to work, and you got to believe. So how, now I'm just going to wrap it, this segment up right now, just wrap it up, just tell you how hard it is to implement what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is you have to care, you have to work hard, and you have to know that all the results are in God's hands so that if you don't get it, you go, moving on, what's next? I did my job. And that that's actually, as far as I'm concerned, the real definition of success because if you're stripping away all these other things, you realize that, that you can't define success based on results. You cannot. Because the results are not in your hand. You can only define success based on effort. And only you know whether you've put in the full effort. And if you've put in the full effort, that's a win. You won. You got what you want. You didn't get what you want. Moving on. Great if you did. Maybe, oftentimes, great if you didn't, because, you know, a lot of times we want the wrong things. And God is protecting us by, by, by not giving us that thing. But, but we don't know it at the time. And, and, it's, and it's painful. But, I'm saying there's a realm, a spiritual realm that exists where it doesn't have to be painful if you're able to balance all these things. Or it doesn't have to be as painful because you're not taking these things as personally. Because you are confident that God is running the world. Now I'm telling you, if you're interested in pursuing what I'm talking about in a real way and bringing it into your life... You must, 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 absolutely, 10,000%, not just believe in God, but believe that God is good and wants the best for you. Because none of this gets off the ground unless you understand that. And by the way, you can't believe in God in a Jewish way, in the way Judaism understands God, unless you 10,000% agree and understand that God is good and wants the best for you. Because otherwise... And it's, it's shocking to think of that. But otherwise, if you don't believe in that, if you believe that there's a creator to the universe and that he runs the world and that he gave us the Torah and that every letter of the Torah is from God, but you don't believe that God's good, you know what you believe in? You believe in this all-powerful dictator. You know, the... In many ways, it's like, like, how can you find like the most important day of the Jewish year? How can you find the... You can find the holiest day of the Jewish year. That everyone agrees is Yom Kippur, right? But to find the most important day of the entire year? Well, I'll tell you, you'll get a... If you talk to big people, 
you're going to get a lot of votes for Rosh Hashanah. Because Rosh Hashanah is when you're really basically establishing the foundation of the entire year. That's where the DNA of the whole year is coming from. So look to the beginning. If that's the beginning, and, and the beginning contains the entirety, well, that's got to be pretty darn important, right? One of the main aspects of Rosh Hashanah <laughs> is that God says, I don't want to be a dictator. I'm running the world anyway. I'm running the world whether you agree that I'm running the world or not. I exist whether you agree that I exist or not. I'm keeping you alive every single second whether you understand that or not. So I don't need you to tell me that I exist. But I would love for this to be a shared, loving relationship where you go, yes, I acknowledge you and I I want you to be doing this. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that, is that from God's perspective, and you see it from the importance of Rosh Hashanah, what Rosh Hashanah is, from God's perspective, it's important that we don't consider him a dictator. That's important to God for whatever reason. That's important to God. And you can only really reach that level if you understand that God is good. And I mean, what are you thinking otherwise if you don't think that? I mean, literally, are you thinking that God is a cat holding a mouse by a tail and just like batting it back and forth with the other hand? And we're the mouse? I mean, what are you thinking otherwise? That God created this world in order to make this time-space prison? Is that really what you think is in the mind of the Creator? Because where does that thought go? If you're not embracing the goodness of God, where does that thought go exactly? What is the alternative? Then what is it that you believe? Because you're believing something, whether you're in touch with it, whether you can articulate it or not, There's something going on in your heart in terms of a belief. What is it? And it's nothing good, basically. Because if it's not good, then it's outside of good. So it's just leading you to a pretty dark place. So we were sitting around this same conversation. We were sitting around and and sort of like... The question was, name a a book that that had an influence on you, right? And I was thinking, like, what? What? You know, that's a... I I remember when I applied to college, that was one of the questions. You know, that's a pretty, pretty kind of standard, famous question. But I was thinking, like, I wanted to give a good answer, like a true answer. And, and this is all going back to just different bits of advice of how not to take life so personally, right? right? How to get to that, that place. Because, again, I just want to catch us up just in case we lost the thread of, of all these ideas. The idea is, why aren't you following your dream, right? And oftentimes... Oftentimes, it's because we have tried, but at this point, it's too painful to try. And it doesn't mean that I'm not um, advocating irresponsibility, right? Like, I've got a wife and four kids and, and, a, and a mortgage, but my dream is really just to be on my own surfing in Hawaii. <laughs> I'm going to follow my dream and abandon my family, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm talking about, <laughs> You know, at a, at a certain at a certain point, you know, you have to you have to kind of figure out like what what's what is the relevant version of your dream. You know what I'm saying? Not just your old dream, but you have to dream new dreams also. You know what I mean? So it could be like there there are certain dreams. Everyone's just got to be realistic. There are certain dreams that have expiration dates on them. I am not going to be a kicker in the NFL. 
It's not happening. <laughs> you know what I mean? I say, yeah, but it's my dream. <laughs> Mazel tov. I'm, I'm glad that it's your dream. <laughs> but now dream some new dreams. Dream some new dreams. Right? Why? You know, look at where you are in life and dream some new dreams. Um, so what's this other way that we can continue to have the strength to dream, right? So we've gone over a bunch of ideas. I'm going to tell you another idea. And it's based on this book that had a big influence on me. It's called Azamra. And, and Azamra is by Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. And it's, it's, it's a sort of like a little booklet that was um, sort of culled from his collective writings. He didn't publish it as Azamra during his lifetime, but it's a coherent piece. And so you can get a pamphlet called Azamra. And it's had a, a very big influence on me when I started like, learning Torah more seriously and keeping Shabbos and things like this. So what's, what's basically the, the, the idea of Azamra? Um, is that Rabbi Nachman teaches that you should actively look for the good in a situation. Whatever situation you're in, you should actively look for the good in that situation. You should actively look for the good in another person, and you should actively look for the good in yourself. And I'm stressing this word actively because we have to actually make a conscious effort to do it. We shouldn't expect that it's going to come naturally. But if you actively look for the good in a situation, actively look for the good in another person, and actively look for the good in yourself, over time it will become natural. Over time it will become natural. And that is one of the greatest shields. I, I tried to do it with all my heart, and and it's been one of the greatest shields in my life against negativity and, and pessimism and depression and things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um... And, and one of the ways you do it is by what I call uprooting the premise. So what does that mean, to uproot the premise or to dispute the premise? So let's say everyone agrees that it's bad news, right? So, but, and then you work within the idea of, okay, given the fact that this is bad news, what do we do next? But you can also say, who says it's bad news? <laughs> I remember when my father was diagnosed with cancer, he said to me, um, I'm about to embark on a great adventure. <laughs> he, I heard those words. He said them to me. I mean, so, so that's, that, that's the idea of uprooting the premise, of disputing the premise. One of, my, one of my favorite... You see, the problem is, is that people are setting agendas for us all the time and then we're working within their agendas. So one of my favorite stories of setting agendas and then working within agendas, I heard this from, from Rabbi Beryl Wine. I, I thought it was such a great insight. You know, in, in Jewish history, there, were, there was kind of like a bit of a conflict, you know? You had the Hasidim, which was this new movement, and then you had what's called the Misnagdim, and, and there was, you know, a lot of friction between these two communities for a while until the Hasidim won. <laughs> but that's just me talking. <laughs> anyway, but, but that aside, that aside, I'm, I'm just being lighthearted here. Um, it's interesting to know, those are two Hebrew terms. What does Hasidim mean and what does Misnagdim mean? Right? You can get a big insight here. So this is what Rabbi Wine pointed at. Hasidim means the pious ones, and Misnagdim means those who oppose them. <laughs> now, here's his question, which I'll repeat. Who do you think named the groups? <laughs> do you think the Misnagdim said, you know who we are? We're the ones who oppose the righteous ones. Do you think that's who they were, what they considered themselves doing? 
Definitely not. They felt like they were protecting Judaism from this outside influence. That they were guardians of the faith, that they were really trying to preserve the tradition. They didn't see them as, themselves as opponents of righteousness. But, but that, that, that name stuck. So an agenda was set. And then people worked within the agenda. So that's what I'm saying. Like, you don't have to accept the agenda. That's called uprooting the premise. It's called uprooting the premise. Right? Who says bad news is bad news? Right? Who says that this person is, you know, whatever negative trait, and then you can believe negative things about yourself? Now, we have to believe that we can constantly improve and we have to work on constant improving. But that doesn't mean that in order to say I can be better, that I have to say I'm bad. I'm doing a lot of things right. All of us are doing a lot of things right. Okay, so then let's work to take that to the next level, whatever that level is. For every person, it's going to be different. But if I'm not talking to myself in a nice way, if I'm not seeking out the good, you know, there's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking episode in Jewish history. Shaul HaMelech, right? The first king of Israel, Saul, first king of Israel, <coughs> is instructed um, by Shmuel, right? The, the one who anoints King David. And Shmuel is likened unto Moshe, right? King David likens him unto Moses. So Shmuel's big. Shmuel anoints Shaul king, and he tells him, you know, there's this war against Amalek, and you got to wipe him out. And Shaul preserves the life of the king of Amalek. Now, Amalek, that's like the, these are the proto-Nazis, right? These are, this is the arch enemy of good. These are, it's like, for sure you want to take out the king, for sure. But Shaul kind of felt like, well, you know, he's the king. I'm a king. He had his reasons, whatever it was. He preserved his life. That night, like while Shaul was being kept captive, he cohabits with another person, and the line of, like, from the king of Amalek, the line gets passed down, gets preserved. So it's sort of like we were kind of like right on the precipice of like removing evil from the world and kind of slipped away. So Shmuel, right, the prophet, the prophet of Israel, comes up to Shoal the next day and says, you blew it, you're not king anymore. And Shaul kills the king of Amalek personally and says, that's it, you're done. You're done. You're not king. And Shaul, like, you can imagine how Shaul feels, right? By the way, he won that war exceedingly, but didn't follow God's command fully. And Shaul says afterwards, after he's told he can't be king, he says, can I just walk next to you in front of the people? In other words, can you imagine how, how low he felt? How, and he just needed a little covet, a little honor, in order to keep himself going, to keep himself functioning. And Shul said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so even after this like precipitous fall, right? not just a personal fall, but a fall for the whole destiny of the world, basically. Shaul walks alongside Shmuel like he's still a king in good standing. My dad was a psychologist. Allah Shalom, you should rest in peace. His neshama should have an aliyah. And he used to tell me, he said, no person ever outgrows the need to be validated. No person ever outgrows the need to be validated. And I'll tell you something. In my own life, more than once, I heard Reb Shlomo give over Divrei Torah that were like from another world. Like, like, like he's just 
like levels of holy genius, right? Beyond. And he'd come up to me afterwards and he'd whisper in my ear, was that okay? And I, I would think of my father's words. And you see it in Shaul HaMelech, right? King of Israel. He said, can I just, can I walk next to you? Can I walk by your side? So what about us? What about you and me? You have to continue to find the good in yourself. If you don't find the good in yourself, maybe you think you're functioning, but there's an excellent chance you're just a member of the walking dead. <clears throat> right? Like the famous words from the, bless you, the famous words of the Kutzka Rebbe, right? It's a very big miracle to resurrect the dead, but it's an even bigger miracle to resurrect the living. doesn't need any explanation, by the way. But I once thought to myself, like, why? Because I love that teaching. I was like, I know that's true, but why is it true? Why is it true? Why is it a bigger miracle to resurrect the living than the dead? And I thought to myself, this is just me talking right now. I thought to myself, you know why? Because if you want to resurrect the dead, you don't have to get their permission. (laughs) But if you want to resurrect the living they've got to be on board. And they've got to be willing to work with you on that. And you know what? That's harder. (laughs) Okay, we'll stop there. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.